it's a little bit uh, intriguing, this passage, uh, as Liam's going to read from Judges chapter 3. He'll begin at verse 7. There's a few tricky names there, so Liam's not going to thank me for getting that reading, but <laughs> he's just going to say them nice and confidently, and you won't know the difference in the pronunciation anyway. So, All right, verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushon Rishathaim, king of Aaron Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, so that he, he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushon Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land, of, the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because he, they did this over Israel, oh, because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join them, Eglon came, Eglon came, attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, son of Jerah the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute, tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way, way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gigal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, for you O king. The king said, quiet, and all his attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out of his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. <laughs> then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when but when <laughs> he did not open the doors of the room, they took they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with, them le with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into, the, into your hands. So they followed him down, and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan, 
that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over it. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. After Ehud came to Shangod, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox code, he too saved Israel. Uh, would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you so much for uh, your word. And as we look at it now here and also in Kids Church, we pray that by your spirit that you would be giving us uh, <clears throat> fresh insights and, and uh, changing our minds and our hearts that we would uh, be people who trust in you more and seek to serve you for your glory. In, the, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder what qualities does a person need in order to be used by God? Sometimes we have our own views on that, uh, but only to find out and to be surprised that uh, God, in fact, uh, uses someone who we would never even think about uh, and we would least expect. Take, for example, <clears throat> uh, Frank Jenner. I think that his story is worth uh, retelling. Uh, Jenner was born in England in 1903 and he was a sailor. He was a sailor without much honour. He joined the uh, Royal Navy, but deserted uh, when his ship was in port in New York. Uh, he later, and I don't know how this works, but he later joined the United States Navy and did the same thing. He deserted ship uh, when uh, they were docked in Melbourne, Australia. And then after some time, he joined the Royal Australian Navy, uh, from which he was discharged in 1937. Now, how would you, what would you think of his character? Uh, a bit unreliable, wasn't he? Yeah, not, not exactly loyalty wasn't uh, a big thing for him. He was also a gambler. And one day in Collins Street, Melbourne, uh, there were some uh, evangelists, some street evangelists, and he agreed that he would listen to their good news but only if they would listen to his good news first. And his good news was called craps. That's a card game uh, where you gamble. And so he taught these two uh, evangelists how to play craps on the footpath um, outside a bank in Collins Street. And then it was his turn to listen to good news. And as he listened to their good news about God and about creation, about sin and judgment about the cross of Jesus and forgiveness of sin, it was right there and then that he believed, that God worked in his life by his spirit, he trusted in Jesus and he turned his life over to the Lord. How about that? Now, he had, he had plenty of rough edges. Uh, his, his gambling had caused poverty and that uh, was a reason for his wife to, to leave him. Uh, and when he tried sharing the gospel with his wife's brothers, uh, it ended up in a punch-up. And they weren't the only ones that were swinging punches. And he was not well. Uh, Frank Jenner suffered from a sickness called narcolepsy. I don't know if that's the right pronunciation. The nurses here can tell me. But narcolepsy, and that's a 
it's a sleeping sickness which he'd contracted from an insect uh, whilst he was on a ship. And so if Frank Jenner was to join our church, how would, what would we think of him? How would we view him? Well, he's the guy that you can't depend on. Uh, he's the guy who gets into fights. Uh, he's the person who's overcoming a gambling addiction. And he also falls to sleep regularly in sermons. So my guess is that if we were to choose someone for ministry, I don't think we'd have him on our short list. He wouldn't be my first pick. We'd look for someone who had their life a little bit more together. Um, perhaps someone like Othniel. Um, remember, we met Othniel last week in Judges chapter 1. Open up your Bibles at Judges, that'll be a really helpful thing to do. We met Othniel last week in Judges uh, chapter 1. And uh, if you just recall the context there, remember that uh, uh, although Israel had conquered Canaan, that there was the, uh, the military mopping up operations to do and some of the Canaanites had actually moved back in and settled some of their towns and cities but there was a mopping up operation that needed to be done. There were peoples that needed to still be driven out and Caleb was there. Um, Caleb uh, was a man who, uh, an elderly man and he offered his daughter's hand in marriage to any man who would capture the city of Kiriath-Sephah. Now, let's think about Caleb for a moment. Now, Caleb, was a, uh, Caleb was the epitome uh, of, of a man of faith. Uh, you remember as a young man, Caleb, along with Joshua, belonged to the, the, 12, uh, the 12 spies who Moses had sent into, into Canaan to check out the land. And of the 12, it was only Joshua and Caleb who came back and said to the people, we've got to go. We've got to enter this land. We've got to take this land. God will give it. But that was a minority report which Israel uh, sinfully rejected. And now 40 years later at age 80, uh, when uh, they entered into the land, it was Caleb who, as an 80-year-old, an octogenarian, begged for the privilege of being able to fight against Canaan's strongest warriors, the Anakites. And he could do so because he just trusted in God. God had promised the land. I trust in God. God will do the job. Caleb was the, the quintessential um, faithful Israelite. And he was also Othniel's uncle. And now because of the marriage, he was Othniel's father-in-law. And so Othniel has got this pretty good background. Um, his uncle was a great man of God, one of Israel's finest. Uh, Othniel came from pretty good pedigree. And what we saw in Judges 1 was that he didn't just depend on his uncle's faithfulness. He was a man who proved his trust in God as he was the one who went in and took the city of Kiriath-Sephah. He was faithful. But yet Israel herself as a nation was not faithful. In Judges chapter 3, verse 7, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, Yahweh, their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherahs. Now, we can see how this sort of thing happens, can't we? Because 
Uh, Israel was pretty grateful that God had given them the land, but uh, when it came to actually the mopping up operation and driving out some of these nations, they, well, some of them kind of thought, well, it was, was okay to worship Yahweh, but to tolerate the other nations living amongst them with their false gods, with their idols, instead of driving them out. And that's how it started. Because they soon started treating Yahweh as if he was just like one of the other gods. One god amongst many. And that then is an easy slide into then actually worshipping the other gods instead of Yahweh. Now, I guess that we can, we can be like that ourselves. It's like when we, as a church, when we fail to rebuke and to correct a false teaching or sin in the church, and when we tolerate false teaching, when we tolerate sin, what, what happens? Well, over time it, it finds root amongst us and it, and it grows, it spreads and it becomes more commonplace. It becomes who we are. And that's the nature of sin. Sin becomes our master. It was the same for Israel. Because in verse 8, if, if Israel wanted the pagan gods, then God's response to that is, well, you can have a pagan king as well. And, and the, the, the punishment fits the crime as God sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, the king of Aram, Naharaim. Now, apparently this name, Cushan how do you say it, Liam? Kushan Rishathaim. There's a slight variation. That, that's not the, what you, the, the normal name. A slight tweaking of the normal name gives you this name, which actually translates as Kushan, the son of Kushan of double wickedness. And there's a view that uh, the author of Judges has just done that uh, tweaking to make the point uh, of and to emphasise the trouble that Israel uh, now found herself in. Uh, you know, it's, it's for good reason that uh, in 1 John chapter 5, John says, uh, Dear friends, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Because if we allow anything to take God's place in our lives, it'll become our master and uh, will cause us pain eventually. So that we might even find ourselves like the prodigal son in our, the pain of our idolatry, causing us to cry out to the Father for help. As was the case for Israel. Eight years under the rule of double wickedness. Who would God choose to save Israel? Who would you choose? How about Othniel? I mean, you know, formidable pedigree, proven success in battle, the, the general MacArthur of Israel. And in this case, if he were our choice, that would actually align very well, perfectly, with God's choice. And so in verses uh, 10 to 11, uh, God raised up Othniel, 
And Othniel leads Israel to war and saves them. Or does he? Well, yes and no. Have a look at verse 10. In verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to the war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. It was the Lord who did it, isn't it? See, what we see here is the uh, Israel did not have kings like the pagan nations did. Uh, this is uh, the institution of, of the judges. Uh, God gave them judges who would administer justice, as any judge would do, uh, but would also lead them into battle. And yet Israel does have a king. The Lord, Yahweh, who by his Holy Spirit has empowered Othniel and has won the victory. And so in a sense there's two institutions here at battle. There's the God and his judges and the pagan kings, but God is king over all. Now, you may, like Othniel, have had a good family background where, uh, where mum and dad loved the Lord and uh, taught you to trust in him. And if that is the case, then you know, guess what? You've been given a pretty good start in life. And as they have uh, raised you to know and to love and to serve the Lord, then they have spared you much of the grief and the sorrow uh, that comes from not knowing God and going through life as a young person uh, not knowing anything other than the way of worldliness and the sorrow and the difficulties that that brings. Well, you may be a person who's got a pretty good mind and you've got good health and you've got uh, and had opportunities to develop your uh, experience and your skills. These are privileges. These are privileges to be thankful for, but with privilege comes responsibility. Uh, responsibility to use what God has given in order to serve him and to serve other people. What we must not do, however, is place our trust in those things, in our background, our experiences, our skills, in who we are. Because when we do that, we're trusting in ourselves rather than trusting in God. Our trust in God must be as such, that when someone does become a Christian or grows as a Christian through us or good things happen for the kingdom of God through us, that we know that, uh, that it is only because of God's Holy Spirit uh, working in our lives and in working in the lives of those who are impacted. It's only because of the Spirit of God that the victory is won in people's lives. As I've mentioned before, I know almost nothing about the <clears throat> giftedness or otherwise of the man who shared the gospel with me for the first time on one particular night. I, I, don't, I don't even know his name. Never met him before, never met him ever since. I don't know who he was. But he was faithful in terms of using the weapons that God has given, which is the weapon of the, of the word of God, the gospel itself. 
And God, by his spirit, used those words to bring, uh, for me, eternal peace, beginning that night. Now, Israel's peace was short-lived, only lasted for 40 years. Verse 12, once again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms, that's Jericho. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Now, as we see here, a gratitude for God's salvation uh, through Othniel uh, soon slips into complacency, and in complacency to idolatry, and idolatry inevitably to judgment and suffering. At this time, at the hands of Eglon, the king of Moab, who seems to have literally grown prosperous at the expense of the abundance of, of Israel during his 18 years of rule. Israel cried out to the Lord and God raised up a, a rescuer named Ehud. And I suppose if Othniel was uh, good because of his pedigree and his proven faithfulness, uh, Ehud is a man who seems to specialise in planning and execution. He was left-handed. Now, some scholars say that the terminology used here uh, may imply that um, his left-handedness wasn't just normal left-handedness, but rather that his right hand may have been deformed, um, visibly deformed, such that he used his left hand. That's a bit speculative, but it... Uh, it kind of makes him an ideal assassin because with a deformed right hand he'd be less uh, likely to arouse suspicion as he was the one chosen to deliver a gift of tribute, which is probably agricultural product, to the king. He planned it well. In verse 16, he manufactured his own short sword, double-edged for ease of penetration, which he was able to slip through security scanning at the palace by strapping it to his right thigh instead of his left thigh, which is where anyone who's right-handed would want to draw their sword from. And he won the king's confidence by presenting this tribute. And then uh, everything's as normal as, as expected. He left the palace but then returned. And claiming in verse 19 that he had a secret message for the king. You'd have to say that uh, Eglong must have been very charming. Because the, the king was so charmed so that, he, that he was disarmed, literally. I mean, he, he let his guard down. He, he let his guards go. His attendants left the room. And in verse 20, Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. Boy, did he have a message from God for him. <laughs> and as the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh 
and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade which came out his back. And by the way, apparently the Hebrew word there would imply it wasn't only the dagger that came out of his back. And that might help us to understand a little bit why a bit later on the attendants thought that he was on the loo. Think about it. By the way, I owe that charming exegetical insight to a member of the congregation who shall remain nameless. If you'd like more details, speak to Steve Watt. He can help you there. <laughs> he who did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. And then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors in the upper chamber behind him and locked them. The attendants later had to get keys. Keys, by the way, were invented about 6,000 years ago by the Egyptians. So locks and keys already existed. Planned and executed to perfection, what Ehud has done here, he's bought himself time to escape uh, the, the guards thought that the king was on the loo. So they didn't want to... But they got to a point of embarrassment where they had to go get the key, find their way in, and the rest, well, you know. Uh, the king was dead. And with the Moabite king dead and humiliated, Israel rose up. And with 10,000 Moabite soldiers struck down, Ehud won the victory. Now, who saved Israel? Well, Ehud's planning and execution were key, but in verse 15, it was God who raised him up. Now, some Christians uh, I know are just very, very gifted in planning in Christian ministry and very gifted in terms of pulling off events very well. Uh, and that can be so helpful in bringing others to come to know the gospel. But ministry plans don't save people. Only God, by his spirit, saves people. And that, I think, is a point which is made so clear in the person of Shamgar. Verse 31. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, he too saved Israel. How about that, eh? 600 Philistines. He was, would have been on the other side, on the western side, where the Philistines were living. 600 Philistines with a you know, pedigree and military track record like Othniel? Not really. Precise planning and charming execution like Ehud? No, I don't think that's Shamgar's thing, do you? <laughs> 600 Philistines with an ox goat. He was probably a farmer because an ox goat is a long stick with a sharp pointy end uh, for moving the ox, oxen along. That's why we talk about goading a person along. I'd describe him as an individualist, wouldn't you? Now, you may be someone who's a bit like an individualist. Uh, you might be a kind of person who kind of thinks, thinks outside of the box, that you don't sort of... You find it hard to fit in with the program, but you love the Lord. Well, we're probably not going to be handing you an ox goad anytime soon, but God can certainly use you to save others. Certainly do. Frank Jenner's family 
said that he was an eccentric, an individualist. Yeah, he was so thankful for God saving him on that street in, in Melbourne that for many years he, he just decided that he was going to approach complete strangers on the street and politely ask this question. Politely say to them, excuse me, sir, if you don't mind me asking, if you died within 24 hours, where would you be in eternity? Heaven or hell? Thanks for listening to my question. Have a nice day. And he did this mostly on George Street in Sydney. During World War II, there were many servicemen in the city of Sydney from uh, various nations, from the various armed forces, from various parts of Britain and British, parts of the British, uh, other British countries and so on. And war has a tendency to cause you to ponder your mortality. So a question like that was actually pretty helpful. And so after the war, Jenner's question remained unanswered for some of these men who approached on the street, who, upon returning to civilian life, just had to find the answer, had to find some assurance, and went along to churches in search of the answer where they found Jesus. And as men grew as Christians, some of them even entered into full-time Christian ministry. Some of them even, even established Christian ministries. Such that over the years, as men in England, Australia, India, and even Jamaica shared in church gatherings and shared with other people how they became Christians, there was one recurring story about a man dropping a bombshell on them in George Street, Sydney, during the war. When someone eventually told Frank Jenner about this, he wept. So he had no idea. He had no idea of the impact that his question had on men and how God used him as the catalyst for men being saved through Jesus. did it for 28 years. They reckon he spoke to about 100,000 people. You see, he was outside the box, wasn't he? <laughs> uh, there was one man who apparently thought that Jenner's method <laughs> must be the, the new correct method. And he thought, I want to be an individualist, just like Jenner. There's irony in that. <laughs> and so he thought he would do it as well. A strategy to be copied tried it out. First man he approached and asked the question of, punched him in the gut. Helped him to realise that he wasn't Frank Jenner. <laughs> he wasn't, Jenner was a man, he was an individualist. Othniel, the, the man of pedigree, Ehud, the planner, Shamgar, the, well, 600 men killed with an ox goad. <laughs> now the Apostle Paul had a bit of each of these qualities, didn't he? I mean, impeccable pedigree as a Pharisee. He planned his evangelism as he, as he uh, went on his evangelistic missions. And he was just a tad out of his mind for God. You know, he's in 2 Corinthians, he says, if we're out of our mind, it's for, it's for your sakes. 
One church he wrote to was the Corinthian church. And it was a bit of a problem in the Corinthian church because they were allowing idolatry a foothold into their congregational life, a different kind of idolatry. It was, they actually were idolising their Christian leaders, including Paul. That was causing division. Some were saying, well, I follow Paul. Some were saying, I follow Apollos. Some were saying, I follow... And they were idolising their leaders. Trusting the prowess of their leaders when they should have been trusting in the spirit of the living God. They were following men rather than God. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul reminded them of some truths about themselves. Now, of course, God does use impressive people like Othniel to do his work. But none of the Corinthians were especially flash. God chooses the foolish people of the world to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong. God chose them, foolish, weak and lowly people, to share the gospel, to share the news about Jesus, which itself looks foolish, doesn't it? A lowly man. Carpenter turned itinerant preacher, dying as a criminal on a cross. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that in that weak, shameful, lowly act that he was bearing our sin, that he was defeating our enemy by taking our sin upon himself, disarming the evil one, taking away the very power that he had over us, which is the guilt of our sin by paying for our guilt and bringing us forgiveness and peace. Who would have thought? You know, God has made us all different, hasn't he? Praise God for that. So let's celebrate those differences in one another and use who we are in order to serve him. Trusting not in ourselves, but in him alone. And as John said, dear children, keep yourself from idols. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, that you are strong when we are weak. We thank you, Father God, that despite our total incapacity to to, uh, defeat the evil one, that uh, you choose to use people such as us. Help us, Lord God, to... uh, to, to use whoever we are, whatever gifts and opportunities you've given us to serve you, and not trusting in ourselves, but trusting alone in your great power to do a work in people's lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.